0: I'm Maggie Carini with Friends of the Library. Today, we welcome panelists from the Knoxville-Knox County Homeless Coalition for a discussion of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Our discussion will be led by Gabe Klein Snell, Chief Clinical Services Officer at Volunteer Ministry Center, Panel members are Bruce Spangler, CEO of Volunteer Ministry Center, Misty Goodwin, coordinator of Knoxville-Knox County CAC's Homeward Bound Program, and Lisa Higginbotham, data analyst for Knoxville Homeless Management Information System. Our panel. Thank you.
1: So thank you guys so much for coming out. This is, I think, a challenging topic. I know some of us were reading the book and talking about how just heavy the material is, so I'm really excited that there's this many people here to hear about poverty. What I wanted to do was to give a framework, provide some statistics and numbers, just to give a sense of poverty in our community, because I think that's an important framework to have as a context for what are we truly talking about here and what's the scope of the problem in Knoxville? So the first thing to think about is how do we actually define poverty? And there are a couple of different ways that that gets defined. Health and Human Services defines the poverty line. So that's a federal poverty line. Um, It varies on the number of people in the household. It does not vary by location in the country that means that this poverty line is the same in New York City as it is here in Knoxville, which is just interesting. Sure. <laughs> interesting or absurd, as the as the case may be. The other statistics are the U.S. Census. When we talk about the poverty level here in Knoxville and Knox County, those are the statistics that they use, that they look at how does the census define it. Here's some information that surprised me and kind of, was a bit of a gut punch, even though I work in this every day. The latest census data shows that for the city of Knoxville, 25.7% of our neighbors are living in poverty based on the U.S. Census definition of that. That's a really high number, Um, 47,360 individuals. Um, If you take the county as a whole, poverty is less prevalent in the county um, than it is in the city. And I think the reasons for that are things like transportation. If you are living in poverty, you need to live somewhere where there's a bus. And so it tends to be concentrated in the city. So overall in our community, we are looking at 69,000 of our Knoxville neighbors who are living in poverty as defined by the U.S. Census. Does that surprise anybody else? I think we are unfortunately pretty average, that I don't think it is horribly worse here than in other communities. Okay, so this is how the census looks at poverty. HUD looks at the need for rental assistance a little bit differently. HUD divides the world into low income, very low income, and extremely low income. The extremely low income matches pretty well what the federal poverty guidelines are, but HUD says if you are in these ranges, you're still at risk for housing problems because you're not going to have enough money to pay your rent, and we think you need assistance. HUD uses a median income of almost 64000 which the census says, no, people in Knoxville, that's not what your real median income is. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. HUD is saying you're, you're poor enough that you need some assistance, and the reality is that most folks make less than what HUD considers. You still need assistance. <coughs> Does that make sense? This is I found my head sort of swimming when I was looking at these statistics. Um, I could not get, I asked KCDC for a number for you know, how many people will actually qualify for rental assistance and nobody could really give me that data. Um, some other things that I think are important is what do we mean when we talk about affordable housing? Um, HUD has a definition for that where we would not spend more than 30 percent of your gross income on your housing cost so that includes utility costs which we will talk in a little bit later about how much of a problem that can be for folks, that very often the problem with housing affordability is not even so much the rent itself, but your utilities are just sky high. Fair market rent is something else that's important and kind of gives us a context to what is going on in Knoxville. Fair market rent is the maximum amount that HUD will assist with, right? So if you have a Section 8 voucher, and you are looking at a place to rent, it has to meet these guidelines here. Um, the way that they set, set these guidelines is based on rents that are in the 40th percentile. And so if we all remember back to our math, what that means is that 60% of all rental units in our area rent for more than this.
2: Um,
1: some more stats, 33% of Knoxville our renters in the county, it's up to 36 percent. For folks that are making the area median income, rent is uh, 1,598. For folks making the median income in Knoxville, the rent that you can afford per month, well, rent and utility cost is 1,218. And average renter wage. People who rent, they, their average wage is um, 1298 which means that an affordable rent is 670 okay? So again, that matches our fair market rent for a one-bedroom, but again, that's only 40% of the units in Knoxville, that most units are gonna be more than that. So most things are gonna be out of range. So if you're a single person, age 65 or over, and you're in poverty, you can afford $288 in rent per month for your housing, yeah. (laughs) Good luck finding that, right? That that, um, it really is incredibly challenging to find affordable housing without some sort of housing assistance. Some definitions, Section 8, we hear that term thrown around. Section 8 is a voucher program, so An individual who is on the Section 8 program can go anywhere into the community and find a landlord that participates with the Section 8 program. In order to qualify for that, you have to be at 50% of the area median income, and you need to find a unit that meets the fair market rental numbers, and then you would pay 30% of your income towards your rent, and the Section 8 voucher would, would make up the rest. We only have, available in our community, we have less than 4,000 vouchers available. And most of those are currently being used. So right now, if you are applying for a voucher, there are only 365 of them available. And so there's a lot of folks on the waiting list. In the past year, we lost 770 units. There were 770 units that rolled off of the voucher program. So they had been taking them, and now they are no longer taking them. The vouchers are still there, but people can't find a place to rent Mm -hmm. is what we're experiencing. There are some other subsidized options, KCDC has public housing, and they have 3,500-ish units. KCDC right now, their waiting list is so extensive that if you are a single person, meaning you are not elderly, you're living on your own, um, you're not disabled, you are just, just poor, they can't even screen your application because the, the waiting list is so extensive. It's pretty staggering, I think. It really is an issue right here in our own backyard. Um, with all of those statistics in mind, I'm gonna move over to the panel and we can talk about the ways that this plays out with individuals that, that we work with. Um, Lisa, I'm wondering if you could share what our folks who are homeless, what they report as being the reasons that they can't get into housing.
3: Sure. If you search www.noxhmis.org, you can look for, um, in our menu, it says Community Dashboard. And we do have ongoing information there uh, that we report out quarterly based on a calendar year. And then we also release an annual report once a year. Before this panel discussion, I did look to see how many people reported eviction And also lack of affordable housing, because I think it's easy to say eviction, but then there's the other piece of you could have been evicted and you still, you may have a voucher and you can't find somewhere to use that voucher. And it was um, 19% just in this quarter, the most recent quarter. And there are other reasons. I think a lot of times people will attribute homelessness to a person's bad choices or unwillingness to do but looking at reasons that people self-report, there are things like, I can't find a job. In the information um, that we do collect through the Homeless Management Information System, a lot of people do have jobs. They actually have earned income, and they have multiple jobs. But as Gabe points out, that's not enough. The wages that they earn, it's not enough to pay the 700-plus dollars for just a one-bedroom and a lot of the folks who are experiencing homelessness you know, may have families, and so that complicates that as well. So it's not just one particular reason, but we do look at multiple reasons. Mental health, I think on average for the last several years, about 60, I think maybe 60% of those um, having a disability experience some sort of mental health problem. There's also substance use domestic violence issues that come into place. There there are a lot of different reasons that people are self-reporting. We're not making these assumptions and saying this is why you're homeless. The individuals themselves are letting us know these are some of the main contributors to these particular instances that they're seeking services for. Um,
4: What our goal is is we we provide an assessment, which we call well-being scale, where we, we kind of find out where people are in different areas of their life, whether that's their social supports, their financial situation, um, child care, their employment, and the scale ranges from in crisis to what, what, we, what is called thriving. We rarely have really anybody that ends up in a thriving situation. Mm-hmm. Um, It's interesting that the language in our our network is to move people into self-sufficiency. And so with our agency, we've chosen really not to say that. Our goal is to move people into a stable situation because none of us in this room are really self-sufficient. We all have someone that we depend on or we've called on or have a friend or, or somebody that's helped us along the way. And what we found with a lot of folks in poverty is they don't. And so within CAC, I wear a few different hats, and I have several populations we work with. As Gabe mentioned, uh, we have three programs that primarily work with families with children. We are the recipient of emergency solution grant funds, which is HUD funding to do rehousing, which is a new term that HUD has sort of introduced. And the goal there is to rapidly rehouse people so they can shorten the time that they have they're experiencing homelessness to reduce the trauma that comes along with that for the children and the people experiencing it. And back several years ago, we were uh, a recipient of something called the Homeless Prevention and Rehousing Program through, um, it was through the Obama administration's era, the Recovery Act money. We had lots of money to help people go into housing and it was a wonderful program. What we found is we had so many people coming to us that owed thousands of dollars to KUB because they had been Mm -hmm. in a home with a Section 8 voucher that they couldn't afford and had to leave and they ended up homeless and now they can't get back into housing because they can't get that bill paid. So through those funds, um, we had them for two years, we were able to pay some gigantic utility bills for folks and it was wonderful because we, we housed a lot of people. Um, so what, what HUD sort of learned from that was what worked and then they developed what was called the rehousing program and it, it grew out of those era funds and it's kind of stuck. It is a great program because you have the ability to place people in scattered site housing. So it's the housing that we have. It exists here in Knoxville. It's there. We're able to help get people into housing through paying deposits and help paying on those back bills. It really helps with that barrier. That's a huge barrier for people that can't get in. So as I mentioned, we work with families with children. It is a a tough challenge to work with families in Knoxville simply because we have very limited shelter space for families here in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. I think at one point when we did a bed count, there was like 22 beds?
3: Uh, I can give it to you, 26, 18, and uh, 14 is what we have for emergency shelter. Okay, although
4: stay full all the time. Currently, we have about seven families that are in their cars that we don't have anywhere to put them. The last two years, we got FEMA, now called the Emergency okay. Food and Shelter Program. We use those funds to pay rent and mortgage and utilities. In the past two years, we've asked for funding to pay hotels, and we've really targeted those families with children who can't stay in the shelter. They may have a teenage son, which none of our shelters will take. We only have one organization, which is Family Promise, that takes teenage boys. And Family Promise, the last I heard, had a waiting list of 75 families on that. Um, 58. 58 now. Well, that was... Oh, I mean,
3: 58 beds.
4: 58 beds, but so 75 on the waiting list, and that was two Fridays ago when we all came together to talk about that. But. Um, It's heartbreaking to know that these poor kids are in the cars, um, you know, and it's – I could talk all day about the effects on the poor kids that are experiencing this. And even the families, you know, we get a lot of single moms, a lot of domestic violence situations where moms are trying to flee and get, get back on their feet and just how that rattles a kid's world. I have two small children myself and I just can't imagine that the kids would have to move, leave their friends, leave everything they know in the middle of school year and go to a different school and Knox County Schools is able to provide transportation for the kids to move, if they're, you know, if they're staying in a hotel, they will take them back to where they were at school. But once that family relocates, then they have to go ahead and register in that school zone. So there's a lot of just issues surrounding that and certainly affordable housing even for families is a challenge and limited vouchers and even when people get vouchers, we've had several families this year that have had to give up their vouchers Mm -hmm. because they couldn't find a place to live within the, the time that they had to find somewhere. So the other hat that uh, that I kind of oversee is seniors. Uh, we In the Office on Aging, we have a program called Project Live where we work with low-income seniors that are under that 125% of poverty level, which for a single senior would be a, a little less than $1,200 a month. We also have a waiting list. We have case management that goes out into the homes and really tries to connect seniors to resources. And our goal there is to keep seniors housed. But what we found, again, about three years ago, is that we had a lot of seniors, a lot of phone calls for seniors who were going to be homeless or they were too frail to stay in our local shelters. So we created a position to just work with those seniors to help them get into housing. And we're using some of the rehousing money to help seniors. The good news is it is a little easier to get seniors in housing who are single, they're seniors, they have an income, so they take priority to get in and we are able to house seniors in about a month. I have two guys that go out and do outreach into the camps of Knoxville and um, just out and about for the folks you see that are living on the streets that are not staying at CARM, that for whatever reason they don't want to go to CARM or They would rather just be on the streets. Maybe they were banned from CARM, or maybe they just can't handle um, you know, with their mental illness the number of people that are at CARM. So my guys have been at CAC for about 22 years. They've been doing this work, and they know folks that have been out there for 22 years that just do not want to go into housing, and then we have those that do. Um, In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we did a survey down under the bridge to talk to the folks to find out why They didn't want to go into housing. The number one reason was they couldn't find something they could afford, um, which is true. The waiting list for singles is huge. And then the number one reason they reported for being homeless was being evicted. And then the last thing is we started a program a couple years ago called Youth Wins to address our homeless youth in Knoxville. Um, And what we found there are these kids are aging out of foster care, so it's almost like being evicted in terms of they have nowhere to go when they turn 18 years old. And before I left to come here, we've got two 19-year-olds in their car, and my case manager came in to say I've got 30 kids on my caseload right now, and I don't know if I can take two two more kids because they are very inten- It's very intensive work because housing for a 19-year-old, no credit history, no landlord history nobody wants to take a 19-year-old kid into housing, and so KCDC is really not an option because they have to have an income to get in there to get priority. So anyhow, our goals with all of the programs, all of the above, is once we get folks housed, is to keep them housed through case management and through resources that we have so they don't end up evicted. And sort of our motto at at CAC is we feel like homeless prevention is the cheapest, you know, the most cost-effective, compassionate way to go. Is to never let people lose their housing to begin with but with all the struggles we've read in the book um, it was funny my my friend said why are you reading that book you live that every day <laughs> and i do but it for some reason made me feel better that it was happening in another yeah. city um, but then it made me feel worse because it's happening in every city but anyhow that's that's sort of what we do at cac i'll yeah. turn it over sure
5: gabe and misty you're more of the practitioner than than i am and lisa is the analyst and I'm just here to look good. <laughs> but I think the value of the book for me is that Desmond says very clearly without housing, everything falls apart. So if I get on my stump, we don't need more emergency shelter. We don't need more transitional shelter. We don't need more assistance programs. What we need is the ability to have housing that's and I'll use three modifiers. Housing has to be has to be affordable. It has to be accessible and it needs to be appropriate. And so without housing everything falls apart. And that's what I find so valuable about the book that that he definitely delineates and portrays the issue Uh, But the last chapter in terms of when he begins to talk about universal housing vouchers I implore you to to really look at that. I mean there are some challenges to that Imagine that if housing is affordable the impact on well that makes housing stable it makes families and individuals psychologically stable but also the other impact that Desmond really wants to underscore is community stability. It's not just about putting some place in a, in a hut and say, well, that's good. But there's also the issue of community. And, and so I, I, I see uh, a glimmer of hope in that. I always believe and I always think about that poverty is a human construct. Poverty is what we make it. And so if we are making it, then we can correct it. And I always try to approach it from that perspective.
3: I think um, Bruce and Gabe have both mentioned the terminology neighbors, and I think that's what this book connects for me is these are our neighbors. And I don't need a show of hands, but I'm sure that many of you have – had some contact in some arena of your life with someone who is suffering with poverty, and you know, just even coming in here today, someone asking you, know, "What are you talking about?" And, you know, and I shared what we were talking about, and they shared. You know, they work a full time job and they struggle with being able to afford housing. You know, I have peers that also can't afford housing on their own without support, and then I think, yeah, you may have some support. I think Misty said something of these folks won't seek help, because most of the people they know are also living in poverty. You know, so I think that this book does a really good job of illustrating the complexities that people are experiencing, and not just what helps get them there, but what keeps them there. And for those of you who may not have read the book, but are just interested in this topic, I encourage you to read the last chapter of the book. There's one, I think it's the epilogue, Home and Hope. Because I think, as Bruce puts together, so eloquently and briefly, that, that chapter really, I think, sums up, you know, some solutions, context, and also how this is not just their problem, you know, not just Arlene's problem, or Scott's problem, but all of our problem as a community. In what way do you think that you can impact this? In what way do you think that you can address? And help create solutions for affordable housing let us know and be vocal about that
4: I I forgot another program that we have which I think is also just important to mention we are working a few years back I see Mike back there I think it was 2000 when we started the case management project um, early 2000s 2007 maybe We have um, case managers that are housed at the Elderly Disabled High Rises here in Knoxville that are part, we partner with KCDC, so we work with those individuals who have been housed who we need to keep housed so they don't end up in the cycle, so one thing that's been interesting just in my position is to see sort of the full circle, so you've got the families with children you've got the elderly disabled you've got folks who've been homeless that have gone into housing and now they're housed with my other set of case managers and this the struggles that they face once they're housed and some of those people end up not many but some end up cycling back around again because they've gotten into housing but they still don't have the supports they need to stay stable even with our case managers there whether it's mental illness or they're not but they've not been able to go to work and and keep their housing but What's interesting is one of the high-rises we work in has – I was talking to my case manager the other day, and we looked at the move-in list, and everyone on the move-in list has been formerly homeless that has lived, been living at Carmel on the streets, and so that entire building, which is oh, – I think it's like 180 or some people in that building – majority of them have been formerly homeless and we've got one case manager there working to try to keep those folks housed and we're currently looking for community support just to help us with some of the things those folks need and um, i mean it's as simple as housekeeping supplies i if we have a program called the pillow project where we we take in housekeeping supplies to give to folks but just to keep their apartment clean is required, and that is—it's—it's it's something as simple as that to keep them housed. But it's been a great project, and we've been able to really work with a lot of people and connect them with those resources, and and use some money to even buy cleaning supplies and other things they may need. Because just to put someone in housing is what we say is—you know—that's not really a housing placement. When you put someone in housing, you, they need furniture, they need pots and pans, they need a towel. Had a guy in his car this morning call me to say. I just need some curtains to put on my windows. Could you just help me with that? Uh, I just don't want people seeing in and I'm a diabetic and I've used all my money to get into housing and I you know I just need these little few things if you could just help me with that. And so, you know, some of it can be even very basic things that folks could use, but uh, you know, and our goal there is to prevent evictions to the streets and as I mentioned we've been pretty successful with that project for those individuals that will engage with us and let us work with them and if they can't make it in public housing then we work to find them housing that they can make it in that maybe they don't have such stringent rules
5: Gabe and Miss Ian, Lisa I wanted to ask you when Desmond says that two thirds of the households do not receive federal assistance for housing did that surprise you? I think he quotes, and I think it's pretty much across the board, across the country. Only 15% of the folks live in public housing, 17% government subsidy, which would be Section 8. Oh, two-thirds, no federal assistance. Does that, did that surprise you?
4: Uh, not really for me, but that's mainly because with my agency, I work with so such a vast number of different populations, uh, and a lot of our seniors that we work with in our Project Live program, our homeowners, they've lived in their homes for a long time, but the, the issue there is that their cost of living expenses keep going up, their KUV keeps going up, and their checks do not go up every month, and they can't really go back to work to do that. But they own their homes, and they're trying to do everything they can to stay there,
5: so well, maybe I need to rephrase my question. Uh, as opposed, does it surprise you? What does it say to you that sixty-seven percent don't receive any assistance? What does that say?
4: Well, I mean, and I think I think too that they are doing the best they can to keep in, you know, to keep the, the the ends meeting. And I think a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people that I know are living paycheck to paycheck they're one paycheck out, and we say that frequently that people are one paycheck away from being homeless and so I would bet that most of those people would, would fall into that category.
6: Yeah. hi i'm Jessica Dean. Thank you for sharing all your perspectives and knowledge about this. Um, I'll suggest that there's possibly one expert missing from the panel, and it's anyone who's actually navigating the system right now or who has been homeless in Knoxville and so for future panels and, and things like this, it, it could be good to you know, have someone sharing that firsthand perspective. Um, it's always a little strange to me to be in a room when it's like people are talking about you, but maybe they don't know you're part of that group. And I moved, to <laughs> I moved to Knoxville five years ago, and I've gone from extremely low income to the very low income bracket. And I don't think when people see that, they necessarily picture someone with a master's degree that teaches at Pellissippi State and works five jobs. And so I think there's a lot of people that you don't picture that being, but that is their reality. And so kind of making sure we talk about them as if they're in the room with us Mm -hmm. um, is a good thing. This gentleman asked a couple good questions. Some of the data I found, Little Rock, Arkansas, 17%, Chattanooga, 22%, Greenville, South Carolina, 19%. Um, So Knoxville's a lot higher, we're at 26%. I rented in Knoxville. And one of the statistics that wasn't up here is renters, kind of flipping the numbers, renters spend about 50% of their income, where homeowners typically in Knoxville spend about 30% of their income. My question has to do with just economics of this. How do we increase the supply of affordable rental units? When we see that 770 um, voucher units we've lost, those are my students. I've had them in my office. They've come home and the lock on their apartment was changed and all their belongings were sent two hours away and they didn't have a car to go get them um in the yeah just in south knoxville this past year so i'm thinking about that in terms of the recode process and zoning it's like the gentleman asked about mobile homes on a vacant plot of land well that depends how that property is zoned tiny houses are fancy mobile homes now i mean really tiny houses that's what they are But they're cool now because they're tiny houses. So when we think about zoning and codes, have you all looked at or do you know anything about inclusionary zoning or community land trusts and how that might fit into the recode process for Knoxville so we could incentivize and increase the supply of rental units? I can say that just through the discussion and making,
4: um, putting the awareness out there that we were down, you know, those units, and having somebody actually paying attention to that, um, and having a mayor who listened to that, they have dedicated some funding specifically to trying to develop additional housing in Knoxville, and I and they're listening. And I think with this recent election, that the plan is to keep that as on the forefront, to keep talking about and finding out what creative things may work. Um, and so we're lucky in Knoxville, even though we're experiencing this sort of housing crisis right now, that we've had a mayor and, and a city council who also takes it seriously and is trying to figure out some different options. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I, I would just add that I do think that so many of the solutions, that it's policy solutions, that it's mm-hmm. folks who live in our community and experience this problem talking, you know, all of us talking with our elected representatives, all of us voting, making sure that these issues stay in the forefront, because I think it is really easy to just kind of get stuck in our own, in our own issues and, and our own concerns, not realizing until it's too late that the issue of affordable housing is your own concern, too.
4: And I would also add one thing just through the Homeless Coalition. So all of us are members of the Homeless Coalition, and we've got a really active Homeless Coalition as well that talk about these very issues and trying to come up with some creative solutions. But we, the past three years, have had a landlord summit to talk to landlords, and and Knoxville was the recipient of the KEEM. It was the Knoxville Extreme Energy Makeover and CAC was a recipient of a lot of money to do weatherization on homes. And so we, when we got that money, what we decided to do is, hey, this is a great way to get landlords to come to the table to find out how we could help them weatherize their homes. And we opened it up for landlords who were Section 8 holders to be able to apply because it was, wh- it was the person who qualified was the renter, not the landlord. So we looked at the renter's income. So we've been able to weatherize a lot of homes in Knoxville. I don't have the exact number. Um, and now the Rounded Up program through KUB, that was sort of the next phase to keep weatherizing people's homes to make them more energy efficient. But So we use that to bring landlords to the table um, to just talk about, hey, we really need you guys to help us and become a Section 8 landlord so the folks that do have vouchers can find housing. So again, we're trying to come up with some creative solutions to, to some of this.
2: So... Came weatherized more than 1,200 homes. I think it might even have been 1,600, but it's definitely 1,200. To just respond to your question, um, last inclusionary zoning is when uh, a developer builds a building that there's part of the zoning code is that they have to include so many affordable units. And Nashville last year put that in their zoning codes. And immediately, the Tennessee state legislature banned inclusionary zoning for all metros. Uh, In terms of recode Knoxville, it's not easily understood how to include affordable housing into any kind of zoning codes. But I think what we're experiencing in Knoxville is gentrification, in terms of a lot of the affordable housing, especially within the inner city, which is a lot of rental housing, is now being converted into uh, very expensive housing for folks who want to move back into the city. Mm-hmm. Lots of landowners are essentially been waiting for the property values to increase to sell. So. The more and more we gentrify, the more and more affordable housing we are losing. But I think there's two possible paths towards at least preserving the existing affordable housing we have, even though the number is inadequate, at least within Knoxville. If you look across the country, you can see that the cities that have moved towards transit-oriented development, San Francisco, Phoenix, Austin, Every city, essentially the lower income folks can no longer afford to live in the city and they move out to the suburbs. And the suburbs are now the highest, fastest growing rate of poverty in the nation. So two possible paths. One is to ask the recode process to do a social economic analysis of recode Knoxville what will be the effect of (coughs) transit-oriented development within the city of Knoxville. And the other ask is of the city council to convene a affordable housing task force on the city council level to essentially make recommendations to the city council of ways and means to preserve affordable housing. An example of a policy would be an affordable housing overlay to preserve at least the numbers of affordable housing that exist within neighborhoods. You know, the first district has 10,000 affordable housing units. The first district would then have to maintain 10,000. I mean, they could be new housing units, but there would always have to be at least 10,000 That's a policy that essentially is a possibility. But I I think, you know, having the Recode Advisory Council or or MPC have a third-party analysis, not have the MPC do that analysis, but have a third-party analysis of what the Recode process will do for affordable housing. Thank you.
0: We are at the end of our hour. Uh, Obviously, a very hot-button topic. Thank you so much up there.
2: Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.